0: Alright, take a Bible. We read John 17, or we read part of John 17 earlier in the service. We're going to reference it this morning, so you're going to have a copy of the Scriptures open. There are notes in the bulletin. If you picked up a bulletin on the way in, you can track along with some of the things we're going to talk about. This is week 2 in John chapter 17. Uh, week 2 in John 17. This is the tail end of what Bible scholars call the farewell discourse. It runs from John 13 through 17. It's called the farewell discourse because Jesus is saying farewell. He's saying goodbye to his disciples, to the small group of men that he spent the last several years teaching and mentoring and sending them out on various missions. Jesus is now saying goodbye to them. It's all at the Passover. I just want to put a few things up on the screen. This is the the general order of what happened on this night. This is the night before Jesus was crucified. Uh, John 13, he washes the disciples' feet. He immediately begins to teach them. This is sort of the doctrinal substantive content of the farewell discourse they celebrate the passover in jesus institutes the passover now is the lord's supper he prays the high priestly prayer that's our passage in john 17 and then at some point he leads the disciples out they leave the city of jerusalem they cross the kidron valley and they go across the valley to the garden of gethsemane where he will be arrested and then tried and then crucified the next morning. So that's the general timeline. John 17 is called the high priestly prayer. This is a trinitarian conversation between God the Son and God the Father. In the midst of that conversation or should say just prior to this conversation, Jesus talks about the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit in John 14 sixteen, But I just want you to be mindful of what we're reading this morning, what we're talking about. We are the proverbial fly on the wall, eavesdropping and listening in on a conversation between Almighty God the Son, the Word who became flesh, the Word who existed in the beginning and created everything in the beginning, with God the Father. And He's talking to Him one of the most crucial, pressure-packed moments that uh, has ever occurred in human history, he's having a conversation with his Father, and you and I just get to listen in to what Jesus is saying to the Father. It's a holy privilege and a high privilege. There's three parts to this prayer. It's not complicated. Last week, we looked at verse 1. Through five, Jesus prays for himself, and he prays for his glory. That's what we looked at last week. Next week, we'll look at the end of the prayer, verse 20 to 26, where Jesus prays for us. He prays for believers, the people who would believe based on the testimony of the apostles. But this morning, we're in this middle section, verse 6 to 19. Jesus is praying for the disciples. It brings us to the big idea of the passage. It's very simple. In the high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed for his disciples and their mission. Praise prays for the disciples, meaning the 12 minus Judas, and the mission that he would send them out to accomplish. Look what he says in verse 9. We read this a moment ago. He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. He's not praying for all human beings indiscriminately. He says, I'm praying for them. I'm praying for those whom you have given me for they are yours. And when you read before this and you read after this, in this middle part of the prayer, you understand he is praying for the disciples. He's praying for these men because as disciples, or more specifically as apostles, they occupy a unique role in redemptive history. And I would just point you to a a reference in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 19 to 22, to the book of Acts, just as a reminder that the church itself was built built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone these men occupy a unique and unrepeated role in redemptive history they serve as a bridge of sorts between Jesus and the church that these men established these men were key players in establishing the church in teaching the church both verbally in word but also verbally in writing writing the New Testament, and of making the very first disciples. And listen, as Jesus prays for these men and their unique role, it gives us some insight into what it is that Jesus wants from his church. These are the men who are going to establish the church. These are the men who are going to set the trajectory for the way the church will go moving forward in the book of Acts. The things that Jesus prays for these men and for the church that they would establish are presumably things that he would want to be true of us and our church today. Now, we're going to begin in a unique way. We're going to begin by talking about Judas. I want you to take your copy of the scriptures and I want you to look at verse 12. Judas is not the main point of this passage, but he is mentioned in this passage. And Rather than just skip over Judas, I want to acknowledge what Jesus says in verse 12. John 17, 12, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one has been lost. When's the last time you lost something? How many of you are willing to admit that it was this morning? Where's my keys? Where's my purse? Where's my Bible? Where's my kid? Don't laugh nervously like you've never lost a kid. Those of you with kids, you know you've lost a kid. It's okay to lose a kid. Mary and Joseph lost Jesus. They went to Jerusalem, they celebrated a feast, they left without him. They just completely lost the Messiah, the Son of God. They left him all alone. So if you've lost a kid, you're in good company. My kids are big enough now that they're kind of hard to lose, but they are becoming experts at losing things. And the thing that we seem to be losing the most lately are AirPods. All the girls have AirPods, they're the wireless kind, and they just disappear they're just they were in my ear, and then it just disappeared. I don't know where it went. I went to sleep with it in, or I had it on earlier. I don't know. I left it to charge. Someone probably stole it. I don't know what's happened. We're always missing AirPods. And you know the feeling you get when you lose something. Right? Your keys, your billfold, your AirPods, your child, whatever it is. You You—you get that feeling in the pit of your stomach like, oh, this is not good. the The thing that I can't find, I need. And you almost just sort of become fixated on it. And you know that pit in your stomach, that feeling of I've lost something that's valuable and I want to get it back. Listen, Jesus is talking about something here that was lost. It's not an exact parallel to the way that you and I Lose things, But the vocabulary is interesting. And if you actually go back and look at the original language, I just want you to see what Jesus is actually saying here. He says, I've guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But that word lost and destruction is actually the same Greek root word. What you could literally translate this is, uh, as is, I've guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of lostness. Or you could say, I've guarded them and not one of them has been destroyed except the son of destruction. It's the same root idea. Jesus is talking about something that's been lost. The interesting piece of this puzzle is that what is lost is actually in fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus doesn't mention which scripture has been fulfilled. John doesn't give us a footnote and say, here's the scripture that's been fulfilled. You might look up Psalm 41.9 as a leading candidate for the scripture that Jesus has in mind when he says the scripture has been fulfilled in Judas being lost. Now listen, in the weeks ahead, we're gonna have more to say about Judas. He's a fascinating character to think about and to study. What I want you to see this morning is he is the foil He's the anti-hero to everything that Jesus is about to pray for, for the disciples. He's not the focus of this passage, and we're not going to focus on him after we move on in just a minute. But everything that Jesus prays for the disciples, for the 11, is missing in Judas. There's a warning for us as we think about all these things that Jesus is praying for, to make sure that these things aren't missing in us, So, how does Jesus pray? He's praying for his disciples, the 12 minus Judas who has been lost. Here's the first thing he prays. He prays with a focus on relationship. Relationship. This is John 17, verse 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Everything he says in verse 6 to 10 centers on the idea of relationship. Jesus is not interested In these men merely holding a title apostle, disciple, pastor. He's not interested in these men only fulfilling a function or carrying out a a job description. He actually wants these men to have a genuine relationship with Almighty God. There's a difference. There's a difference in having a title and carrying out a function and actually having a genuine relationship. And Jesus is praying about that relationship. He just kind of weaves in and out in this prayer, and he talks about this relationship from several different perspectives. There is a divine perspective to the relationship that Jesus is talking about here. Look what he says in verse 6. He says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me, Out of the world. Yours, they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Jesus is saying, These people belong to you, God the Father, before you ever gave them to me, before they ever knew me, before they ever met me. They were your people. Jesus talks about this in John 6. I've given you some verses. You can go back and look at this idea that God has a people that He knows a people. Paul describes it this way in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, even as he, that's God the Father, chose us in him, that's God the Son, Jesus, he chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That's the divine side of the relationship we have with God. He knows us Before we know him. It's an undeniable biblical truth. Paul talks about it. Jesus prayed about it. He's praying for the disciples. and He says, these people were yours before you ever gave them to me. He also talks about the human side of this relationship. Look at verse 6. He talks about these people, these men have kept your word. They did that. They kept your word. Look at verse 8. They believed. They believe that you sent me, and they've received the words that you gave to me, and they know in the truth that I came from you. That was something that the the disciples did, the apostles did. They knew the truth. They received the truth from Jesus. They believed. Look, when we celebrate a baptism, which we did this morning, that's what we're celebrating. We're looking at someone's life. We're saying, look, this person believes. They belong to God, and now they believe. They've received the things of God. They're keeping God's word. It's possible because of what Jesus says in verse 6. He says, I've revealed your name to them. Revealed God's name. It's not like a, a special code word or a speakeasy, like now you know the right name to use. It's really talking about God's glory, which is what Jesus prayed about in the first part of the prayer. When he says, I've revealed your name to them, he's saying, I've revealed to them everything about you, the things that are true about you, the entirety of your character, who you are, and what you're doing for your people in the world. When you read about God's name in the Bible, you ought to think about God's glory. Those two ideas go together. It's possible, or it's all summed up in verse 10, Jesus says, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. Your people are now my people, and my people are your people. They know the truth. They believed the truth. They were yours before you ever gave them to me, but now they have a genuine relationship. Listen, the world has seen enough people who have a title, people who fulfilled a role in a church or a religious setting who did not know Jesus. We've had enough Judases. Enough people who held the office and who appeared to be gifted and who participated in all the stuff that the church was doing, but they didn't know God. They didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Stories come out every week. You see them in the news all the time. This pastor, that pastor, this evangelist, that evangelist, this apologist, that apologist. They go down in flames, literally, all because they filled an office, they had a title, but they do not know Jesus. Jesus is concerned about that, so much so that on the night before he's crucified, he stops to pray that these men that he's about to turn loose on the world would truly know God. He desires that, not just in people who have the title pastor or apostle, but also in people who would claim the title church member or Christian. It's not just that you would have the name or the title, that you would fulfill an outward function, but that you would have a true relationship with Jesus. Secondly, he prays with a focus on unity. Unity. This is John 17, 11, 12, and 13, verse 11 to 13. When I read this, it reminds me of a parent getting ready to leave their children unsupervised. We do that occasionally at our house. One of the last things we do if that's about to happen is we sit them down, we look them in the eyes, we say, be nice. And you know what they do? They smile sweetly. They nod. Yes, of course, always. Always. And as the parent, you know, as soon as I walk out of the room, the Hunger Games is going to break out. (laughs) World War III, it's just, they're going to turn on each other like ravenous wolves. Look, Jesus is about to leave. He's about to leave. And he is literally in this room looking at this group of men, and he's praying for them. And one of the things he prays is, God, please let them be nice. Let them be together, let them be unified, let them be on the same page. Why did he pray that? Uh, Maybe in part because of what you read in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, Jesus calls 12 men to follow him as apostles. One of those 12 is a guy named Matthew, also known as Levi. He was a tax collector, which in the first century, Jewish life meant he had turned his back on his people to get in bed with Rome to make money and to get rich off the backs of his own people. He was not a popular guy. Also in the mix was a guy named Simon. Not Simon Peter, but Simon the Zealot. That doesn't mean Simon was a hothead. What it means when we say Simon the Zealot is that Simon was a member of a political party that existed expressly and openly to assassinate people like tax collectors. And Jesus says, both of you guys are in. Now he's getting ready to leave, and he's looking at these guys sitting around the table. There's Matthew, and there's Simon. Lord, make them one. Just like you and me are one, God the Father and God the Son, make these two people one. Maybe he's looking at James and John, brothers. They were amongst the twelve, In Matthew 20, there's a story about James and John. They put their heads together and they come up with something that's about like most brothers would come up if brothers put their heads together. They say, hey, we kind of think that we deserve the best seats in heaven. And one of them says, hey, you should ask Jesus. And the other says, no, you should ask Jesus. And then one of them says, what if mom asked Jesus? (laughs) And they get their mother... To go to Jesus and to say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, would it be okay with you if James and John had seat one and seat two in heaven? You can pick one or two. It doesn't matter. We just want one and two. What do you think the ten thought about that? You don't have to wonder because Matthew tells us the ten heard about it and they were indignant. I imagine that many of the ten thought, who are you to ask for my seat? These were men who bickered and fought, and they had petty rivalries, and they thought they were better than each other, and they tried to one-up each other. They came from backgrounds where they weren't inclined to even like each other. And Jesus stops on the night before he dies for his people. The night before, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He's going to die in a matter of hours as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. The wrath of God that should fall on sinful people is about to fall on Jesus. And one of the things that he stops to pray for, for the leaders, this group of men who will establish his church is they need to be unified. They've got to be on the same page. And he prayed for their unity. Just like we are one, let them be one. Look what he says in verse 11. I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world. I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jump down to verse 13. He uses the same phrase, now I'm coming to you. He said that up in verse 11. Now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. You know, we always think that we will find maximum joy when we get our way and when we get a leg up on other people. Jesus understands you'll actually find joy when you have unity with other believers. Here's good news. As slow as you and I are to learn this lesson, it's possible to learn it. You know how I know it's possible to learn it? John learned it. The same John that wrote this gospel, the same John that with his brother sent his mother to ask Jesus for the seat of honor because he didn't understand the value of unity. He just understood the value of getting a one-up on somebody. He wrote this. In First John chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, he said, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It's basically a paraphrase of what we're looking at in John 17. He wants them to have fellowship with each other. That's unity amongst Christians. He wants them to have fellowship with the Father in Jesus Christ, That's a genuine relationship with Almighty God. And he knows that if you have fellowship with other people, unity with God's people, and you have a genuine relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, fellowship with God and with his Son, then your joy is complete. Jesus is praying about it. Prays that they would be unified. Thirdly, Jesus prayed with a focus on protection. Protection. Look what he says in verse 14 and 15. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. There's really two requests there. Protect them from the hatred of the world and protect them from the attacks of the evil one. Jesus understood that while he was on the earth, he provided some measure of cover for these men. Right? The hatred of the world was largely directed towards Jesus. He was the leader. The attacks of the enemy were not exclusively directed towards Jesus, but they were largely directed towards Jesus. He provided some measure of cover. But as he's prayed already, he's leaving. He's going away. So he says, Father, protect them from the hatred of the world and protect them from the attacks of the evil one. You see this kind of dynamic at play in sports sometimes. I'll show you a picture. How many of you have ever heard of these guys? Right? Pretty good basketball players. Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. They win an NBA championship in 1991. They win an NBA championship in 1992. They win an NBA championship in 1993. They look unbeatable. Then Michael Jordan says, I'm going to go play baseball. And everyone says, well, they still got Scottie Pippen. That's half the duo. I mean, he was there for all those other titles. Michael Jordan left. They still had Scottie Pippen. They were okay. But when Batman leaves, suddenly Robin's driving the Batmobile. Scottie couldn't drive it. They didn't win any NBA championships when Michael Jordan was gone. But when he came back, they started winning titles again. 96, 97, 98. That's sort of the dynamic at play. Jesus is leaving. Right? The hatred of the world and the attacks of the enemy that he has been bearing the brunt of are now going to fall on his disciples. And he prays about that. He knows it's going to be difficult. He says, look, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but the world's going to hate them. And the enemy is going to attack them. And it doesn't take long in the book of Acts for you to see this play out in real time. In fact, it's Peter and John who are initially hauled in in front of the same thugs that had Jesus hung on a cross and they are told to quit preaching about Jesus. Acts chapter 4. They called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John, two of the men in this room, Two of the men Jesus prayed for, that God would protect them from the hatred of the world and from the attacks of the enemy. Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. We cannot speak of what we've seen and heard. We have to talk about it. We can't shut up. Do what you need to do, but we're going to talk about Jesus. As soon as they said that, they let him go with a lot of nasty threats. These guys, Peter and John, gathered together with their church family and had a prayer meeting. They opened the prayer meeting acknowledging that God was completely sovereign over all things, even the crucifixion of his son. They asked that God would grant them boldness to do what he'd commanded them to do. And when the meeting was over, Luke tells us that God granted that request. He gave them boldness. He filled them with his spirit, and the word of God continued to spread. It's an interesting lesson on how God answers the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17, the prayer for protection. He did not protect Peter and John and the rest of the apostles from persecution. He did not keep them from all of the attacks of the enemy, but he gave them strength when the persecution came and the hatred came and the enemy attacked. He gave them strength so that they didn't crumble underneath the pressure. In 2021... Not any of us should live under any illusion that God will spare us persecution. Do not live under that illusion. Please do not live under the illusion that God will never let the enemy tempt you or attack you. He is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. It's not a matter of If, but it's a matter of when, you experience the hatred of the world and the attacks of the enemy, then you rest confidently in the fact that Jesus prayed that God would sustain his people through that hatred and through those attacks. Lastly, Jesus prayed with a focus on the mission. Focus on the mission. Look at John 17, 16, 17, 18, 19. Jesus says, they're not of the world just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Underline that phrase. Sanctify them in the truth. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Verse 19, for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. There's that phrase again, sanctified in the truth. Sanctified in the truth. Verse 17, sanctified in the truth. Verse 19, right in the middle. Verse 18, Jesus tells you why he's praying that you would be sanctified or set apart in the truth. It's because just like he was sent into the world, you have been sent into the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Set them apart in the truth because I'm sending them into the world. Over the last month or so, I've been reading about a worldview that is the dominant worldview in the academy in the United States of America. It's the dominant worldview of the entertainment industry uh, in the United States. It's the dominant worldview on social media and all of the nonsense that takes place on social media. It's the dominant worldview in Hollywood and uh, everywhere in between. It's fueled by something called critical theory. And I've been reading books about people who are critical of critical theory, anti-critical theory, and I've been reading books by people who think this is the greatest thing ever and uh, taking all of this in. This is, the, this is the worldview that is behind the entire LGBTQ plus movement it's the worldview that's behind cancel culture. If you don't agree with us, we're going to silence you and shame you. It's the worldview behind uh, the desire to completely eradicate the world from Christian morality and to completely do away with the nuclear family. Is not a, a passive, kind, friendly worldview. It's a worldview that hates Christians. Hatred. And I'm reading about it, and I'm taking it all in, people who say it's the worst, people who say it's the best. I'm reading all this stuff. And i got to tell you, uh, I keep closing these books and putting them down, and every time I put a book down, I think, you know what? I need to buy some land out south of Alpine, and I need to dig a big hole in the ground and put a bunker and a missile silo, something down there, and just close it up, and you guys can have all this mess, and I don't want anything to do with it. I just want to get away from all of this nonsense. And a lot of you are nodding, like, yes, can I come with you? Build me a room in the bunker. There's not going to be a bunker. I'm not inviting you. Even if there were a bunker, you're not invited. Jesus didn't tell us to bunker or hunker or withdraw or to pull back. He prayed on this night that his followers would be sanctified in the truth. Prayed it twice. Jesus prays something twice, you better listen. Sanctify them in the truth. Set them apart in the truth of the gospel because just like he was sent into the world, he has sent you into the world. You understand these men in this room, they face the exact same temptation to pull back and withdraw from the Roman Empire. Have you ever read about the Roman Empire? It's a nasty, ungodly, idolatrous, wicked disgusting place on so many levels and the apostles were no different than you and me if you're a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ they looked around their day and age and they said I don't belong here I don't want anything to do with this mess and they faced the temptation to say let's just pull back let's just withdraw let's just try to get away from all of that nonsense that was not the mission this is the mission John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, again. He said this in John 17, that he was sending them into the world. Now he says it again. Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We've been sent. We've not been called to withdraw and build bunkers. We've been called to be salt and light, which requires getting out of the shaker and turning the lights on. Matthew 28, Jesus said, "Go and make disciples of all the nations. Go, do it." Mark 16. Jesus said, "Here's the mission: Proclaim the gospel to all of creation." Don't pull back and create your own little Christian bubble. Go and tell every part of creation the good news of the gospel. Luke 24, Jesus said, I want you to go to all the nations, and I want you to tell them about the importance of repentance and the promise of the forgiveness of sins. Go. Tell all the nations this news. Acts 1, verse 8. Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Not out south of Alpine in your bunker. To the ends of the earth. He sent us. He's not called us to pull back and to withdraw. But he's given us a mission. It was so important to him that on the night before he was crucified, with the weight of the world, the weight of our sin literally bearing down on his shoulders, he stops and he prays. Not just for the world, but for the men who would go out and establish the church. Essentially, he's praying for the church. What does he want it to look like? It's a very simple prayer. He wants the people who go out and lead this new movement and join this movement to have a genuine relationship with God. Not just to have a title, but to have a genuine relationship. He wants these people to be unified Because he knows we come from a lot of different backgrounds. We have different ideas about different things. But he wants us to find our unity in the gospel. He prayed for our protection. Not that we would never face the hatred of the world. Or not that we would uh, never face the attack of the enemy. But that we wouldn't crumble when we face it. And he prays for the mission. Not that we would silo up and hunker down. But that we would be sent with good news.